Hey, thanks for listening to the Berwyn AG Podcast. This podcast is a ministry of Christian Life Center in Berwyn, Illinois. Our goal is to create a real faith for the real world. We hope this podcast helps you grow closer to the Lord. For more information, you can visit our website, berwynag.org, or you can find us on all social media platforms at Berwyn AG. If you're blessed by what you hear today, be sure to share and subscribe. Thanks, and as always, God bless. Talking about the big battles, of course, of all the battles uh, in the world, uh, it's unlikely any exceeds the odds of improbability that are in the the battle that we are going to read about in Joshua chapter 5. We've been going through Joshua and the book of Joshua, learning a lot. There's a lot of revelation in there. But uh, as we've been going through that, we've come to... uh, to now Joshua chapter 5, and there's a really interesting thing about this, this impossible battle. Think about this. Whatever battle you're going through, you'll be blessed at the end of it. Right now, whatever you're going through, there, there's, there's something in it for you. Say, there's something in it for me. Right, so there's, you're, you're in the battle because you're going to get something out of that battle. You're fighting for your blessing or your promise or what God is giving to you or for your life or whatever. Even if it's a life and death struggle, you're still fighting for that. But you get something out of that. The Israelites in this battle, they are going to get nothing, not a zippo out of this whole battle. They get nothing out of this battle. So to face down a uh, an impossible situation, and to know that you have zero self-interest in it is kind of an interesting uh, thing to, to, to imagine. No gold, no treasures, no booty of any kind, no strategic position, no stronghold from which to defend their land, nothing. They get nothing out of this, this war they're going to go into. And sometimes we go into war just because God says, get up, we're going to war. And we have to be willing to do that. It's easier when there's self-interest because we, we can see what the reason God has a plan for that. But in this case, it's just not that way. So we're in uh, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, and it reads like this. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. So this, this story we're about to venture into, of course, is the story of Jericho. It's a, a fantastic historical story of Israel taking into, going into the promised land. But it begins with this portion. Chapter 6 is preluded by this little portion in chapter 5 where we get uh, this, this understanding of, of uh, what provoked Joshua to take this, this impossible. In fact, in fact, what's happening is at the moment that Joshua, it says that Joshua is near Jericho and he's, I kind of see Joshua stroking his beard, trying to figure out how in the world 
are we going to get inside those walls? How in the world are we going to take that? You know, we have the command of God. How in the world are we going to take that, that, that promised land that God has given to us? How are we going to get inside there? How are we going to defeat those thousands of warriors that are held up within those walls? You know, we know that the, there were two sets of walls. First of all, there was an embankment. And, and, we did, and then we know that there was a, a set of walls on top of that embankment. So probably from the, flo- from the ground where they were standing at the base of that, up to the top of the first wall was about 20 feet. And uh, then there was a hill that rose, and at the top of that hill, we know there was another wall that was 46 feet high. And so you just imagine that, that, that there's this long sloping area, and so that this 46-foot-tall wall is, is the inner wall, and from, that, from the top of that wall, uh, they can see everything that you're doing, you know, when you're around the bottom of that. Thousands of warriors on the inside. We know at least uh, 1,200 people, uh, 1,200 warriors would have been on the inside of Jericho, but all surrounding Jericho between the walls was all the, the slums and the poverty uh, and people encampments all in there. And so there have been thousands and thousands more out there. And so we, we see that. Inside Jericho, there was this, it was well known that there was a spring that came up right in the center of the city, so they had a fresh supply of water. They could wait you out forever. I mean, they just had water coming in. There's no way to starve them out frequently. That's how they won battles. They would just surround a city, and they would wait until people starved to death on the inside. And once they began to, uh, you know, throw the dead bodies of their children outside because they stunk so bad, then they, then they surrendered. But that wasn't going to be the case in, in Jericho because there was plenty of water, an unlimited supply of water. Also, it was right after the spring harvest, and so they had, they had uh, storehouses chock full of grain. So not only did they have water, but they had bread that would last the city forever. So they, they were just really well set up, and, uh, and, the, and the scripture says it, that, that, uh, that Joshua is standing there uh, looking at the city, and I kind of imagine him scratching his head or stroking his beard or somehow thinking about how in the world can we do this, and taking the assessment of the, the task that is before him and saying, this is a big battle, this is an impossibility, and this, there's no way we can possibly do that. There's no way we can, we can get into that place and, and accomplish what God has called us to do. And I think it's right at that moment that this man shows up. It says the man shows up and he has his sword drawn. And Joshua is no punk. He walks right up to this guy. I kind of appreciate that about Joshua. And says, what team are you on? I mean, according to the man's answer, this guy's going to get either get run through or, you know, he's ready. Joshua's already to, to take him one at a time if he has to, you know, to get in there. And I kind of like that. That kind of, kind of shows you a little bit about who Joshua is. He's, he, he's no wimp. He's, he's ready to, to, to get in there. And so uh, he challenges the man right away. Whose side are you on? And he says, I'm, I'm not on either side, which would be disconcerting, I would think, if you were just praying about uh, what the Lord was going to do for you. I'm not, he's not on their side, but he's not on my side either. And so being that he's not on either side, that would be a little disconcerting. And so then he says, he said, I, uh, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and I have, I have now come. You know. uh, and so God is 
right away confronting Joshua's, the way that Joshua is looking at the battle. Because Joshua is looking at the battle as if, how can we do this? What tactic, what strategy, what, what ingenuity can we use to get inside there and to accomplish what God has assigned to us? How in the world can we do this impossible thing? What way is there for us to do, do that? And God sends this angelic being there to, to confront him. And he says, I'm not on anybody's side. And as soon as he announces that, we see Joshua immediately bow and say, in submission and in surrender and in humility and in recognition that he's been looking at this all wrong. And he says, what message does my Lord have for me, right? He, he immediately recognizes that. Why is that? Because he's been looking at this battle through the eyes of the flesh, He's been looking, and that not that how it always is? When something big is in our way, when there is a big walled city between you and your promised land, then you always look through the eyes of the flesh. How can I do this? And you try to, how many of you have ever given yourself a headache trying to figure out how God's going to do it? You know, you're just like, just, it's, just, I know there's a way. I, I know I can figure it out. You stay up late at night. You're pencil to paper, thinking it through. You're trying to wonder, how's, how's it going to happen? And, you, and, and you're just not relinquishing this to, the, to the, the will of God. It's the same thing in the New Testament, really. Paul reminds us over and over again that our battle isn't fleshly. Right? He says, he says uh, our battle is not waged against flesh and blood. In another place he says, uh, the manner of our warfare is is not the same as the world. In another place yet, he says, he says the weapons of the world are not the weapons that we use in our warfare. Our weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, right? Taking captives, the thoughts. And, uh, all, and so he's explaining that, that we have to get out of this fleshly mindset when we look at the, the possibility, the, the capability, the the probability, we have to look beyond that and get into the place where we recognize there's something deeper, there's something spiritual happening in this. And, and so even before the battle is even started, before the first rock is thrown, so to speak, there already God is doing something in Joshua, and He's telling them, you've got to look at this through what it is. This is a spiritual battle. You've got to go into this with the understanding of, of spirituality. And so God's going to disabuse Joshua of the, of the thinking that this, there's anything that he can do to accomplish what the Lord has given him. Even though he has responsibilities, just like you have responsibilities you, that you have to accomplish if God is going to do what he's promised you to do. If he's going to deliver that promise to you, there are things you have to do. And yet, those things don't amount to a hill of beans. Right? They don't really account to anything because they're just, they're, they're almost foolish. They're almost meaningless. So, so he immediately confronts him and says, you've got to change the way you're thinking. Joshua's bow shows that he's humble, that he's willing to learn the lesson, that he's willing to submit. And so this is the message that God gives to him. Take off your shoes, because this is holy ground. Now, we would look at that and say, this is the battleground. But God says, the place of your battle is also holy ground. No warrior would ever take off his shoes. No warrior would ever strip off his, 
his sandals, he would not be ready for the fight. But God says, this is the, this is the ground that, that you, you need to recognize. This is not just battleground. This is holy ground. And holy ground, it has to be always living under the reverence of God. And so, what is God doing? You, many of us raised our hand. Oh, I'm facing a big battle right now. Well, what is God doing in that big battle? What is He, what is he doing? What is He revealing to us? What is He exposing in us? What, how is he, is he ripping out the, 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 uh, the, the things inside of us that would, that would make us to try to think that this is something that we could ever accomplish? It's not anything we could ever do. It has to be something that God does <coughs> in conjunction with us, with us, alongside of us. I'm going to grab a drink of my water here. Sorry about that. So that amazing truth is that the thing that you're facing down is your holy ground. That's not what we think holy ground is, is it? We think holy ground is going to be this really blessed place where the angels come and meet us, the birds chirp and land on our shoulders and deliver us of nice... A meal, right? That's not at all what it is. Holy ground is looking right down the, the barrel of the gun and saying, this is holy ground. That's a powerful thing right there. Over and over, God told Israel, I will fight for you. I will fight for you. God told Moses, stand still, see the salvation of God. God told the Israelites, I will fight for you. He, he said that so many times, I think there's seven times in the first five books of the Bible that God told Israel, I will fight for you. He told David, the battle is the Lord's. Over and over again, God has been saying to his people, and will continue to say through to his people, I'm fighting for you. I'm the one who's doing this warfare. I'm the one who's been on your side. So keeping that understanding. Now, let's take a look at with Jericho. Chapter 6, verse 1 says this. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites' No one went out, and no one came in. Now, I remember how they got in there the first time. They snuck in with a couple spies. And perhaps uh, Joshua was thinking to himself, we could slip a couple guys in when, they're, when people are going in and out in the daily commerce, and we could slip a couple people in, and when they got in there, then they could leave the gate open or throw a rope over the wall or somehow get us back in there. We've, we've snookered these guys once before. Maybe we can do it again, but that's not at all what God was going to do. In fact, when Joshua gets up there, one of the most disconcerting things is that Jericho was completely shut down. No one was moving in out. There were no commerce. There was no, no sale going on in between the people or we're not buying any bread. They didn't need anything. They were all ready. Archaeologists have uh, worked on this site for uh, hundreds of years, really. And they have found, as recently as uh, 1990, uh, to, when I read this article in the New York Times from 1990. And I, I, my thoughts were, it was amazing that the New York Times had all this information about Jericho. And, in, uh, and, then, and I was thinking to myself, and how much the New York Times has really changed. But, uh, but in 1990, the New York Times uh, was, was promoting this, this, this uh, Professor Garstang's uh, revelation that he had found. Because originally, there were people who thought that that um, Moses had to have traveled out of Egypt at a certain date, and so it was a thousand years before he actually did. And so, <coughs> because they were off by a thousand years, they completely missed 
seeing the, the level. You know, the, Jericho has been a city and a town for so many years, that, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, that there are layers and layers and layers and layers. So that they can go and, and look at the layer of, that is the layer of about 1,400 and, and they can find that layer and they can recognize this is, would have been Bible times. There's stuff that's piled up on top, but this is, would have been the time that Joshua would have gotten here. And so uh, while that, or those early people did not find what they thought they were going to find, uh, the, Professor Garstein went, went there and he, he began to excavate in, in a, a, another area. And as he excavated, he, he came down and he found a three-foot uh, section of ash. So ash was this deep across the entirety of the entire uh, tell that this is the mountain that where the where this was. So there was a three foot layer of ash filled with bricks, filled with uh, uh, Egyptian earrings and uh, and amulets, and filled with Canaanite pottery. And so uh, he right away recognized what this was. This is what Joshua was going through. So they. They carbon dated that area. They, it came out to 1410. They, they carbon dated these, these pottery pieces to uh, 1410 BC. And so they recognized this is probably from the, uh, this. We know from the biblical record, we didn't read it, but we know from the biblical record that Joshua, after he marched around the city all those times, you know, six, one time, six days, and then on the seventh day, he marched around seven days, seven times on the seventh day, and then he blew the trumpet, and you know the story. You've, you've seen the video or Veggie Tales or something. You've seen, you've seen, you know something about this. So, so, uh, so at, when all this happened, then at the, at the end, then they were to, to go rush in there and put to death and, to the sword anybody that was in the city and not, not take any uh, of, of this stuff for themselves, but to take it all, all and, and give it to the Lord. And everything was the Lord's and it had to be destroyed. And uh, so as they, they were about to do that, and then when they were done, then they burned the entire thing down. Okay? We also know that, uh, uh, archaeologically, we know that the area was given to, to, area, to earthquakes. Tremors, many, many tremors. Even to this day, there are many tremors in the area of Jericho. And so uh, I, <laughs> I don't know if, how exactly the walls fell down. The, the Hebrew word for how the walls fell down, it, sa it says that it fell upon itself. In NIV, it just says collapsed. But it fell upon itself is different than it was collapsed. In fact, what, they, what the professor found as he was uh, excavating was that there were no... no no signs of siege ramps being used. No, no uh, signs of, of uh, things plowing in from the outside. You know, to take a wall down, you would have to, you know, ram that, that and that would, that would create a pattern that would run a different direction than, it, than if the walls collapsed under their own weight and fell upon itself, as the scripture says. But it's so specific in the Hebrew that, they, that, that it would, you would think it would be very clear. And in fact, it is. When they get down there, they recognize that the bricks fell in such a way that it, it's like they collapsed upon themselves, rolled upon themselves. The top wall, the 46-foot high wall, which I believe was 7 feet uh, th or 12 feet thick, uh, four, 46 feet high, 12 feet thick, that, that wall collapsed upon itself and fell down the hill. It went down this hill, and then it hit this other wall, and this wall collapsed upon itself, and it fell out. So that what in fact happened was it created a ramp 
So the Israel, Israelites, wherever they were all around the city, as the walls began to fall and fell down, they created a, a smooth ramp so they could just run up from wherever they were. And so, in effect, what the people in the city who were not killed underneath the falling of these massive walls and these, these uh, boulders, but they, they were going to be struck down by the people who ran in from every angle up the ramp that God had created for them as they were doing this act of obedience. Let's talk about that for a second. Their act of obedience is completely foolish. Right? What are you thinking if you walk out and you see your enemy marching around silently, marching around your house, and then they go home? And then the next morning, you're having your coffee, and here they are again. Here they come. They're marching around your house silently, and then they go home. And day after day, for the first six, after, after day three when nothing happens, you can almost hear that there's mocking, you know. Oh, the nuts are out there in front of the house again, walking around, you know. There they are out in front of the city. They're at, when God asks us to do something, he, he wants us to show faith in our obedience. It doesn't mean that the things He's asking us to do have anything to do with the deliverance He's about to work. Think about that. God is saying, I just want you to see if you'll do this. Right? And so, sometimes our act of obedience is almost foolish. It almost feels foolish. After six days of walking around once, and this was a pretty good jog, I imagine, then, then on the seventh day, they have to go around seven times. I would think after the first time you see them make a lap, you pretty much figure out today's different. Something's different about today because they just keep going around and keep going around silently with a holy hush, actually, as they're walking. Their voices were not allowed to be heard by anyone in the city. That's what it says. So they're quietly going around and going around and going around and keep going around and keep going around and they keep walking around and and this is not a fast walk, this is a slow walk because there's someone there carrying the ark, right? And so now after seven laps, they're probably all pretty well tuckered up. Seven laps would be enough to do me in, I'm pretty sure. So after they get around on the seventh, after the seventh lap, then the priests blow the trumpets and the rest of the congregation screams out some kind of a battle cry that we don't, we're not privy to know what that is. Some kind of a battle cry and the walls begin to crumble. Perhaps at that moment in time, God said, these people will do anything for me. They'll march in seven, different, seven little circles on today and scream at the blowing of the trumpets. And so when they scream, I will activate tremors or earthquake underneath. Or, or, or who knows what God did in, in that time. Or maybe I, I, it's hard for me to believe that it's just the sheer volume or their voices that brought the walls down. But there's something to be said for when we're facing our battle to know that God has asked me to do these foolish things and they don't seem like very much, but it, it's, it's enough for me to be obedient and to do these things. It's enough for me to do that. And I, I can do what, what I can do, but only He can do what He's going to do. And after all, who's most humiliated if the walls don't come down? It's God, right? How many times did Moses say, uh, well, if you don't do this, our enemies will say that you, were, you brought us out here to kill us, not to deliver us. It'll, be a, it'll besmirch your own character, God, that you're a murderer, not a deliverer. 
So, so over and over again this happens. So after all these things, they, they go into this. And this is a holy war. So th- this is God has assigned them to destroy everything on the inside. Some people have said that, that this is... Uh, it's, it's, there, there's a problem biblically. How could the walls fall down, kill everyone, and the people, everyone gets slaughtered, and yet Rahab, who lived where? Remember where she lived? In Jericho, but where in Jericho? On the wall. She lived on the wall, right? So Jericho was, had this outer wall. So there is one eight-foot-high section of a house that is not crumbled that they discovered when they were doing the archaeological stuff. Isn't that amazing? One eight-foot-high section of the wall, a little corner of the wall that met with the outside wall, a place from which you could lower two spies if you needed to to get them away in time. That one eight-foot section of the wall was Rahab's house. You could go there today and see it. And, and th- that Rahab's house is the place that, w- that didn't, it didn't crumble. So God brought the whole thing down except for this one little spot. And He told Joshua said, you guys go, you spies, you know what Rahab looks like, right? So you run in there, you go get her. And they knew right where to run. So they ran right up and grabbed her and her family and pulled them out of there. And then destruction came upon the place. They raised the whole place. And then they burned it to ash and burnt it completely down as, as an offering to the Lord. Everything was destroyed. And so in, in the process of doing all that, they're doing all that to honor God. And they're being also being... Faithful in their word, they're saying, We're gonna, we, we said we would rescue you, they rescue her, right? They don't, they don't turn their back on those that, that were helping them in that process, you know? And, uh, and consequently, Rahab finds herself in the hall of faith in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And it says, By faith, Abraham hid the spies. So God accounts her, her action as an action of faith, even though it was duplicitous towards the people that she was with, even though it, she immediately identified with the Lord's side, and so, so God calls that an act of faith. Not only is she in the, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, but she's also in the lineage of the Messiah. In, in Matthew chapter 1, there's five women mentioned there, one of which is Rahab. She is, she's in the lineage. Jesus traces his roots all the way back, and one of the people that, that he's related to, of all the, all the men, the five, one of the, the five women is Rahab. And so Rahab is the one who, who uh, uh, is, acknowledges uh, and, and is brought in. Not only is she welcomed into Israel, she's welcomed into the line of the, of the Messiah. And when the author of the book of Matthew is writing that, he specifically, because there was criticism about um, Mary, you know, that she got pregnant before she was married, and so there was a scandal. And so, as the author of the book of Matthew writes, he brings up five more scandals. Rahab the harlot, right? Tamar and Judah. He brings, that, he brings them up. And he mentions these others that are in there that are, uh, that are, that are scandalous. And so, in a, in a way, to show that in the line of the Messiah, we can see that God uses the imperfect to make the perfect. So all this he, he does, and, and, and it's, it's revealed to us here in the Scripture. So God works dramatically 
in this conquest because it's a, the first conquest in the land. Sometimes the very first thing that has to happen when you're going in has to be very dramatic so that those around will see that God is on your side. Do you remember when you first became a Christian and God began to do amazing miracles, right? Just crazy, answered crazy miracles, you know. Uh, for me, God did uh, some, some astounding stuff the first year that I got saved. And then later on, some of those miracles weren't duplicated. I had to learn how to do it rather than have God provide it for me miraculously, you know. I had to go to work, all that kind of stuff. But the, the, in the beginning, I needed God to set the hook in me. I needed Him to, to acknowledge for me that he, that he was doing something in my life so that my faith could rise to that. And so this was for their faith, but it was also for the fear of the nations around them because their warfare would be saved in the future because of what God was going to do in Jericho and what Israel was obedient to do in Jericho. And so the, all this destruction comes on that, on that. So I say all that to bring us to this place and ask you, what is the impossible assignment that God has put before you? What is the big battle that you're facing? And if the battle is too big, what if the battle is too big, and what if the battle is too ugly? Like you're not going to get enough out of it for you to continue on fighting. I mean, these people ran up this hill that's exhausting, after marching around the city seven times, that's exhausting, and went in there and slayed these people and took stuff that would never be theirs. They would, they would get zip out of this battle. It was just for the glory of God. So God will put us in places where we're up against a big battle. And sometimes that battle, we receive nothing out of it. Now, we could find a few things that are lingering benefits for them going into Jericho, but that's really looking back from looking from perspective of looking back. But this is the first taking of the promised land. They're right in the middle of they just tasted in the previous week. We just tasted the promised land. Now they're going to go in to do the battle. So here's the questions I'm asking you tonight. Do you have this big battle you're facing? this big promised land you're trying to grab a hold of. This thing you're supposed to take. It's not going to be delivered to you. You have to take the promise. So, can you rename the battle? Can you rename the battle and recognize that it is God's battle? Whose battle is it you're fighting? This is God's battle. God is going to do an amazing work. Can you take your shoes off and recognize that this is holy ground? You know, most of us, when somebody, when somebody comes to threaten us at the door, we don't take our shoes off and go to our prayer closet. We immediately rise up to try to fight in the flesh back. But God is asking us not to rise up in our flesh, but to rise up in our spirit take our shoes off and go into the prayer closet and to declare this battle that I'm facing, this big battle that I'm facing is holy ground. God's going to work something in me before he does something in the battlefield. 
That's really important for us to do. Can God ask you to do something that is not attractive to you? Or does there always have to be something in it, you know? Sometimes I, you know, sometimes I get tired of people saying, oh, if you give in the offering, God will bless you. I, I totally agree. That's 100% true. But that's not really the reason that you give in the offering. The reason you give in the offering is because God said, don't come into my presence empty-handed. And so we come in acknowledging, you've provided all this for me. I give you some of this back, you know, as an act of worship. Do I benefit? Yes. But, but, but can God ask me to do something that, is, that gives me no personal benefit and I still be obedient? Isn't that a test of my faith? One of the things we, we used to do is when, when Pastor Seth was a little boy, he was the youngest, you know, so he, he always got sent on the mission, you know. Go in the kitchen, get your dad a couple cookies, you know. And he'd be like, uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm like, I'll time you. Go. And he'd take off running, you know. <laughs> Run down there, come back running. 25 seconds. That was, that's a world record right there. Thank you. Give me the cookies. That's what, that's what you do to the youngest, right? One time I had him on my lap. You remember this? I had him on my lap, and I had the remote control under my leg. And so he said, where's the remote control? I said, I don't know. I said, but all you got to do is stamp the floor. And he said, what? And so I stamped the floor, and then I would change the channel like that. And he was like, I said, you try it. And then... <laughs> That's what you do. That's what you do with the youngest. You, you tease them. You send them out. Can God ask us to go run and get something that gives us nothing? Can God ask us to go do something for which he gets glory and we don't get any notice whatsoever? Is our faith to that place? Or are we always demanding that he share a little of his glory, a little of his blessing, a little bit of what he has for us so that we can receive some of that? Yeah, that's the question we have to ask ourselves. How strong is my faith? Because we're going in to fight big battles. And as glorious as the victory over Jericho is, it's the first of many battles. It's the worst of many battles, but it's the first of many battles. Whatever you're facing, there'll be more battle. But this battle is holy ground. I'm going to fight this. It needs to be fought on my knees. I'm going to go in and take this thing because God told me to do it, not because it's desirable for me. When we do that, we find a breakthrough in our. We suddenly recognize what God is trying to do in us, that He's trying to make us into. Servants. Servants of the Most High God. Wow. Yeah. Because God wants to be with us in the same way He was with Moses and the same way He was with Joshua. I believe that. I believe that God has that for all of us. I don't believe God ever has anybody whose job is to sit in the pew and do nothing. He's always got an assignment. So He's always going to challenge us. Let's pray tonight. Father, we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus who went to the cross for us. And we remind you, Lord, that you have called us by your name and given us your name and your word. 
Shape us, Lord. Teach us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to face down the big battle that lays before us, Lord. Show us, Lord, how to take down our Jericho, Lord. And in the days when we feel foolish marching and shouting, Lord, show us that all you're looking for is obedience and faith. And you'll bring us through because you are the God who fights for us. Thanks for listening. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. We take pride in creating free content that will hopefully enrich your life and lead you closer to the heart of the Father. If you're blessed by what you heard today, help us continue to make content just like this by sharing, subscribing, and if you feel led, by contributing financially on our website, berwinag.org. As always, if there's anything that we can do to help you in your walk with the Lord, contact us on our website, berwinag.org, or on social media at berwinag. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.